Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Welcome to the Kudzu Vine for November 14th, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have you all on. We've got a lot of things to talk about. Um, hopefully all, imp- well, mostly important, one very sad, um, but I do want to kind of tell about our guest. Uh, join us for the second time on the Kudzu Vine from Arizona, uh, John Ryder, former executive director of the Maricopa County uh, Democratic Party. He's going to join us and tell us all about the fascinating issues going on in Arizona, one of the most interesting and fascinating states heading into the 2020 midterms. Uh, so we'll discuss that with John in about 20 minutes. Um, but in Georgia, and really, I think all over the nation, um, some really sad political news hit late in the week, and that was the passing of former um, U.S. Senator, Georgia Secretary of State, Secretary of Veterans Affairs, um, Secretary of National Monuments, and I'm pro- I think it was either in the State House or the State Senate. All of those things, um, former U.S. Senator Max Cleland passed away. Um, I believe he was 78 years old, um, you know, uh, and just made so much of every day of his life. Um, I've got some stories I want to tell, but Tim, um, go ahead and tell some stories that you know and and kind of give your thoughts. I met uh, Max Cleland in 1981. Uh, we were hosting that year when I was a state employee, the Georgia State Employees Association Annual Convention at the old Ramada Inn, um, which was out there on 411. I think it's a retirement home of some sort. Now, you might know right where that is, David. Um, but Governor Busby was our speaker that year, and um on the day that uh, the governor was there, I happened to glance around at the back of the room, and there was a fellow sitting back there in the wheelchair alone. So I walked back to talk to him, and he introduced himself to me as Max Cleland. Of course, I knew who he was. Everybody in the room knew who he was. Um, and he was running for secretary of state. Um He had um, served in the state Senate, and uh, he would go on and get elected uh, in uh, 1982, I believe it was, to the the Secretary of State's office. And, uh, uh, you know, we we all saw him a few times over the years. He he was out everywhere. Uh, One memorable evening, of course, and I believe you were there that night, David, in 1998, uh, we had him up here for our uh, Jefferson Jackson dinner. Uh, He arrived early. Uh, 
and uh, he he was the kind of guy that took up the room when he was in it. But uh, you really had to admire him, uh, all that he went through in his life. He after what happened to him, of course, in, in Vietnam. No one would have said a word had he chosen to live a quiet life um, afterward. Uh, but he he did the exact opposite. You mentioned all the things that he that he done, and uh, I'm just real sorry to hear him uh, that he's gone. It's the it's the passing of an era. Yes, um, Catherine, your thoughts on Senator Cleveland? Well, I, I was really sad to hear it. Um, he was always, um, you know, he like like Tim said, he always showed up. Like he'd be at, you know, at events, and and he was um, always very friendly. And I, I I actually ran into him once in a restaurant. I can't remember what restaurant, but I was out uh, with my uh, then boyfriend and. We, of course, knew him, who he was, and we'd met him, like, at events or something, but he didn't know us, you know, to recognize us. But he was having dinner, and um, we just, by himself, and we just uh, went up and said hello and thanked him for his service, and he was so kind and generous and, you know, took a moment to talk with us. It was really very nice. And uh, so, I mean, it's just... Like Tim said, it's the passing of an era, and I'm so grateful for all the service that all all the service that he did. You know, from uh, obviously his service in Vietnam, but then like like David said, like you said, David, all the other things that he did throughout his life. So um, he'll be missed. Yes, um, definitely. So. Uh... You know, one thing I remember John Kerry saying, and he and John Kerry were very close, uh, both Vietnam veterans and then served in the Senate together, that, you know, in Vietnam, after you've been shot at or, or injured in some way, every day's extra. And you got to think that this is a guy that had three of four appendages blown off. Um, he lived 53 years of extra days. Um, just incredible. Uh, his book, he always quoted that um, Civil War veterans poem that originally wrote it, but I think Max Cleland actually brought it to everybody and made it famous in a lot of ways, where, you know, throughout the poem, they're asking God for all these things, all these gifts and blessings, and at the end, he didn't get any of them, but he got life so that he could enjoy all those things, and it's such a profound um, statement of life, and, and I think no matter what somebody's situation it is, they could read that and take something from it to just count your blessings, what you do have, and make the best of every day. And that can be hard for a lot of people, but my goodness, you'd think it'd have to be hard for uh, Senator Max Cleland after Vietnam, and he did that with his life. Um, I was fortunate enough to work on his campaigns. I did his campaign website for the 2002 campaign. Um, and was part of that campaign. Um, it, I had clients I worked maybe closer with a lot of times, but uh, when I tell people, like, these are some of the campaigns I worked on, Max Cleland's always on the short list, along with somebody else that passed recently, John Lewis. Um, they're these giants of Georgia. 
And I think that's what we call our, our um, big dinner in the spring is the Georgia Giants dinner. And, and there's two we've lost. There's, you know, a handful of those Giants they talk about uh, in Max Cleland. Um, I remember the first time I guess I ate with him. Tim, you may have been there too. It was, it was in that restaurant that um, it used to be a uh, branch of Schroeder's, not the downtown Schroeder's, but another one. He had about 20 people there. Um, Ann Osborne was there, who we've had on the show several times. And so you really got a chance to, you know, feel like you were having dinner with or lunch with Max Cleland. Um, another time there was a fundraiser out at a farm, a challenge Max where they had games and Max Cleland would play the games, including basketball, which he was a state um, a member of the all-state team in high school. And I don't, I don't think people that saw him later in life realized that this is a, a six foot two some odd uh, individual that was all, you know, state athlete uh, before Vietnam, sadly. And uh, he, he did these games and then they ate watermelon. And I have a picture of him and my son, who was about two at the time, staring at each other, not probably definitely one, not knowing to make of the other, but just having a good time eating watermelon. So um, it, it's just so sad, but, you know, to, have what happened to him in Vietnam in the 60s and live all that life and to live nearly to your 80th birthday. I mean, that's, that's a special life. And I hope that he gets remembered and gets all the accolades. And even though the Republicans are in control of a lot of state government, it would make a lot of sense for them to find some way to remember Max Cleland's life now that he's passed away with some significant honor statue on the Capitol grounds, some significant roadway, something. You know, I, I don't know how they want to choose to honor him, but it seems like you could appreciate the service and the triumph of the human spirit, even if you didn't agree on political issues. Um, Catherine, thoughts on that? I think that's an excellent idea. I don't know how mm-hmm. – I, I don't know if they would uh, go for it. After they, you know, ruined his reputation in that 2002 election. Yeah. Well, that would be a chance to make amends, Tim. Yeah, it would be nice to do something. Um, I, I, I couldn't imagine him not having some form of recognition at the state capitol because he meant so much to the state, you know. I mean, um, his era went on for a very long time. He did a lot of things. And uh, to consider what he overcame to do those things even makes it that much more special. So, yes, definitely they should honor him. I I would think, I mean, and there are other ways that may be even more significant, but can you imagine if there was a statue on the Capitol grounds, him in his wheelchair, and think of the two groups that would see that. One, veterans would see that, and they'd say, yes, this was a sacrifice he made as a veteran in time of war, and that would be a connection. And then people with disabilities. He had disabilities, but look at what he still did. You can be inspired by that. I mean, I think everybody should be inspired by his life, but I think those are two real connections you make, and that's outside of being a Democrat or Republican because you can be an – um, either of those two groups and be in either political party. Um, 
And so I hope somebody, you know, puts this together and, and does something in the near future. Um, so that would just be my hope. Well, let's go ahead and turn to another topic. Um, certainly one that um, is not as um, noble and as um, weighty as the, the life and passing of Max Cleland, but really is a statement of where our politics is at today. And over the weekend, we saw a little bit of it, but it kept continuing on. Uh, amazingly, uh, Ted Cruz over the week last weekend, you know, um, said that Big Bird was um, messaging to children government propaganda by, you know, having a tweet talking about getting the vaccination since kids, you know, between five and twelve cannot be vaccinated, and it, it starts there. And then a state senator from Arizona, um, you know, coincidentally, since we're having John Ryder on the show, called Big Bird a communist. And then another representative, a state, I mean, a U.S. representative, Paul Gosar, and I think we may end up talking about Representative Gosar because he had other things we'll get into uh, with John. He echoes the whole Big Bird is a communist, and then other people pick it up and put Big Bird in the Che Guevara beret and, and red star outfit, um, picking up on this theme. Um, Catherine, this really seemed to go beyond a joke and almost have some seriousness uh, for some of these folks where they call a 50-year-plus beloved childhood um, icon a communist. What do you think on that? It's just so ridiculous, but it reminded me that remember back in 2012 when Mitt Romney was running, Night Remark about Big Bird and the Muppet Show. Like, what is it with Big Bird and the Muppets? Like, I just don't get it. I, I mean, so the Muppets are. Uh, Arrived after I I've never watched that show. Well, I don't have, I don't have any connection Sesame to it. Street. The the Muppets and Sesame Street, Street are kind of sorry. related through Kermit. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. The Sesame Street. Um, but I, I just think it's so ridiculous, and there are so many important things going on in our excuse me in our world. And our country right now, this distraction is um, embarrassing and and childish. Yes, um, Tim. Uh, they actually on Saturday Night Live last night they had a skit, you know, all about this. Apparently, uh, even some conservatives have tried to come up with their own um, Elmo-like figure. Uh, trying to fight this proxy war on Sesame Street. What's your take? <laughs> uh, I mean, how silly can politics on the right get right now? Uh, I, I mean, if, if if the former president accuses your father of plotting to kill JFK and attacks your wife's looks, you grovel at his feet. But let a fictional member of the uh, Aves class of animals raise his head, and there's an opponent we can get after, right? 
I, I mean, uh, c- come on, Cancun, Ted. I, I, I hate to use that, but, you, you know, that that's what I'm thinking. By the way, for all of you folks that want to have a little fun, if you've got a Twitter account, go and follow Big Bird for Senate. I don't know who's doing uh, this Twitter account, but they are having some fun with Ted Cruz. All the Muppets are 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 jumping in uh, to to help Big Bird in his race. And he is attracting tens upon tens of thousands of followers. Uh, and uh, it, it's really, have you seen it? Either one I, I've you? seen some of the Big Bird for Senate. Um, yeah, last thought, and then we're going to um, transition to our guest. Uh, I just keep thinking of the Sheryl Crow song um, where she talks about my friend the communist holds meetings in his office. I had no idea Sheryl Crow's and Ted. Um, Cheryl Cruz, I mean, Cheryl Crow and Big Bird were such friends, um, you know, just <laughs> bizarre. Well, anyway, I want to welcome in for the second time to the Cousin Vine our expert on Arizona politics, John Ryder. Welcome back to the uh, Cousin Vine, John. Well, good afternoon, David. Yes, and it is afternoon for you. I know you, we're getting you a little early. Uh, unfortunately, the sun's gone down here, so um, yes. Well, we're just so excited. We think that Arizona has one of the most interesting political landscapes right now. And y'all got, you know, just like us in Georgia, a governor's race, a Senate race, new congressional maps, all those things, plus even more crazy characters than we may even have. I, although, I don't know, I guess we have a, a congressional representative that may um, can go toe-to-toe on that. But let's start with that governor's race. Um if, if I'm not mistaken, your governor, um, Doug Ducey, he is term limited, correct? Yes, he is. He uh, will not be eligible to run again. Okay. So that gives it an open seat um, and then an open primary on the Republican side. Just, I guess, start out. Like, who's going to replace him, do you think, is the um, standard bearer for the Republican Party? Well, right now there's uh, there's like five or six uh, potential candidates running on the Republican side. Uh, probably the the uh, the, the front runner right now is a, is a woman named Carrie Lake. Uh, she's a former uh, Fox, uh, our local Fox affiliate station here in Phoenix. She's a former news anchor for that station. Um, so she's she's got good name recognition across much of the state and. She does seem to be the leading Republican candidate, uh, and she also has Trump's blessing. Um, in addition to uh, to Ms. Lake, there's Kimberly Yee, who's the uh, current Arizona State Treasurer. Uh, there's Matt Salmon, former congressman, as you probably know from Arizona, uh, is running. Um, uh, Steve Gaynor, a business businessman who's running for uh, former no- former nominee for Secretary of State, he did not win against uh, Katie Hobbs, who's the current uh, Democrat inco- Democratic incumbent, and she's also running for, for governor on the Democratic side. So there's five or six people, uh, but the, the, the ones with real names are Carrie Lake, uh, Kimberly Yee, and Matt Salmon, and then a few, a few others, including Steve Gaynor. Um, yes. Now, let me ask you a question about Carrie Lake and about how Fox works, because um, 
in Atlanta, the Fox affiliate is not like Fox News. I mean, I don't really watch a lot of television news anymore, um, but my understanding is unless it's dramatically changed, it's just another local news. You know, if it leads, it bleeds, cover the fires, cover all that stuff. But it's not like right-wing you know, partisan news on the local level. Is that not the case in Arizona, or is Kerry Lake kind of shaped or shaped by that um, newscast? Um, I would agree that it's it's not as uh, the it's a it's a Fox owned and a owned and operated affiliate here in town. Um, so it's it's not just a it's not just an affiliate. It's actually a Fox O and O. But she um, it, it is a it has traditionally been probably yeah john uh we're kind of losing the connection a bit oh okay um yeah there you so go. if i go a little slower and actually yeah um it's owned by fox uh it's it's not a news station it's a, you know it's a traditional tv station but it is probably the most uh conservative of the local news uh shows um, so I would say she is definitely has shaped that. Um, whether she's, you know, like I said, she has Trump's blessing. Um, she's the current front runner on the Republican side because of her name recognition. Yeah, and we're kind of seeing that other places. I know in Wisconsin, a uh, Rebecca Clayfish came from out of TV and then was lieutenant governor um, and used kind of that path to, to office. Um, well, now the Democratic side. Um, how are things shaping up for the Democratic Party? Well, on the Democratic side, um, as I said a few minutes ago, Katie Hobbs, who is the current Arizona Secretary of State, um, is probably the lead. I would say she's the leading Democratic candidate for governor at this point. Um, there are three Democrats running: uh, Ms. Hobbs, who who has probably the greatest name recognition, being the current Secretary of State. Uh, and there's a gentleman named Aaron Lieberman who's a uh, has been a state representative up until just he just resigned a few weeks ago to run for governor. Um, and Marco Lopez, who um, was I believe he was the youngest uh, mayor of uh, of a town uh, maybe anywhere in the country uh, when he was mayor of Nogales, which is a border town here in Arizona. Uh, but that was 20 20 years ago. Um, and Mr. Lopez uh, was. Um, was chief for U.S. Customs and Border Protection. He worked um, in the Janet Napolitano administration. She's a former uh, well-known Democratic governor in Arizona. Um, but again, it would seem that Katie Hobbs um, definitely is, has the lead on the Democratic side. Yes. Now, I know that you know you may not be able to uh, just say, oh, who's going to win, who's not going to win, but – what are each of those, maybe, or at least the top contender to their path to victory? They'll do better in Phoenix, better in Tucson, what have you. Uh, well, you know, the Phoenix metro area has uh, 65% of the population, 65% of the vote. Um, traditionally, you can't win Arizona without winning Maricopa County, which is the uh, the core of the metropolitan area. Um I would say both Katie Hobbs on the Democratic side and Carrie Lake on the Republican side probably hold uh, hold the the lion's share of the vote um, in Maricopa County in the Metro Phoenix area. 
again, because Katie Hobbs is from uh, the Phoenix area and is well-known here, um, and Carrie Lake, obviously, being a TV uh, personality, is, is also very well-known. So, um, you know, I think the they, they will both do well in, in Phoenix, in the Phoenix metro area. Um, in Tucson, Tucson has traditionally been a more democratic city. So it would be uh, it would be likely, but it has about 15% of the state's population, the metro area of Tucson. So you know that would be presumably that would be Katie Hobbs or the Democratic nominee. But if it's Katie Hobbs on the Democratic side, she would uh, do better in Tucson. Um, in the rural areas uh, outside of the two major metro metro cities, um, you know traditionally it's you know red red country, Republican country. Um, so the, the Democratic nominees have to do well in the two major metropolitan areas. Um, and that's, that's exactly what uh, uh, Mr. Biden did in the, in the last election, and he was able to pull off his, his statewide win in Arizona by doing that. Yes, and um, I recently uh, read a bar, listened to a book, Canyon Dreams, about Navajo communities and high school basketball. Um, the Navajo area, I guess it's the north eastern uh arizona is does that produce a decent amount of vote for democrats or does that um more republican area no that's uh that's a fairly solidly democratic uh area the the navajo nation is the northeastern corner of the state um it is uh the navajo nation and then the hopi uh the hopi uh tribe just just in that same area um are significantly uh democratic leaning um, but even though the Navajo Nation is the largest uh, largest uh, Indian population in the entire United States, um, I believe there's about 200,000 uh, Navajo, which, um, while a very significant number, um, it, it does not compare with you know four and a half to five million in the Phoenix area and, and over a million in the Tucson area. So um, it's important. And the Democratic uh, candidates for statewide office uh, almost always do very well in the in the uh, Navajo Nation area. Yes, I just did not know much about it until I listened to that book and found it very interesting. It really didn't have a lot of political, you know, overtly political overtones. But I, of course, I see things through a political lens for good or bad. Well, now let me kind of change topics a little bit. Um, and we were talking about the Big Bird tweets, and we know your state senator, Wendy Rogers, or maybe not your state senator, but someone out in Arizona state senator, um, you know, made statements. But then Paul Gosar, he echoed those statements about Big Bird, but then on Monday uh, last week, he takes it to a whole new level and takes this Japanese anime and puts one face or one character he puts his face over it that character assassinates um representative Astacio cortez and then he wields two swords and attacks president biden whose face was on another character um what exactly is the reaction in state in arizona to representative gosar's actions on twitter well yeah that was uh Again, that was pretty shocking, I would say. Well, let's say it, it would have been shocking. Uh, certainly a few years ago, that would have been a very shocking thing. Um, unfortunately, you know, to attack a sitting, another sitting congresswoman um, and, and potentially the president 
would have been considered very shocking. Unfortunately, nowadays, that's, um, I mean, it doesn't get the reaction that one would expect it to get. Um, I think on the Democratic side, clearly there was outrage. On the Republican side, uh, uh, crickets, I guess is the best way to put it, mostly speaking. Um, you know, one thing to keep in mind about Representative Gosar is we, we were just talking about the Navajo Nation being in the northeast corner of the state of Arizona, which is uh, a pretty traditionally democratic, solidly democratic. Uh, Mr. Gosar represents uh, mostly the northwestern part of the state of Arizona um, and down into the northwestern part of metropolitan Phoenix, uh, just, just barely into the northwestern part of metropolitan Phoenix. So it's really the northwestern part of the state, which is um, – has a long history of, um, shall we say, uh, difficult anti-government, um, uh, some overt white nationalism. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a traditionally very, very conservative, uh, very Anglo uh, part of the state. Um, Timothy McVeigh lived in uh, King for a number of years before uh, becoming infamous in Oklahoma City. Um, and that's the area that Mr. Gosar represents. Um, another thing to keep in mind about Mr. Gosar is that in the, in, uh, the 2018 election, um, six of his nine siblings actually disowned him and uh, publicly supported his Democratic opponent. Uh, th saying that they didn't want to be associated with him or his views. Yes, I remember those. And I think one of his sisters from Washington State was um, on CNN. I happened to see a clip on YouTube where she was just really beside herself and, and really felt he needed a psychological evaluation um, after posting what he did early last week. And this is what kind of just baffles me, and this can go to either political party if someone on the Democratic side did anything like this. I mean, and it's possible in the future. I can't think of anything in the recent past that was anywhere like this. But you can find somebody that agrees with you on the issues but does not conduct themselves in this way. There's just no excuse for this. And they need to, in their own party primaries, find people that politically represent them, and I'm not going to agree with them. Maybe no one on this panel right now agrees with them, but we know that they're going to conduct themselves in a professional way, and the political party is going to be better for it in the long run anyway. So I just don't understand why folks like Representative Kosar aren't turned out in the primary level. Is there any reason why he continues to have that bond with Northwest Oklahoma? I'm sorry, what Northwest Arizona? Um, well, he's he has not he has not faced a significant primary challenger that I can think of in years. Uh, you know, he he's very he's very well known for espousing far right conspiracy theories, uh, even white nationalists now. I mean. In the past, in the past year or so, he's re he's gone really quite far to the right, embracing white nationalist uh, tendencies, um, supporting you know like the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and all of that, and uh, uh, and he's very proud of that almost. I mean, what he what he uh, tweeted this past week is is part of that. It's a, it's a it's troubling, uh, and yes, I, I agree with you that you would think that the Republicans would be able to take out. 
somebody on their own side who they think has gone too far and no longer represents them. But uh, he doesn't, as far as I can tell, he will not have any significant uh, primary challenge this year. Uh, part of that is we still don't know exactly what the, what the lines are going to look like. Uh, as you know, every, every state is going through redistricting, including us. Uh, we're pretty sure what the lines are. We're pretty close to being sure what the lines will look like. But the, the, final, the final lines, we've talked about this probably in a few minutes, will be out uh, probably the end of December. Um, and, you know, Mr. Postar, whether he's actually in the district he's going to run in or living in the district he's going to run in or just outside of that district, which is very possible, um, he has a, you know, he has a kinship with the folks of northwestern Arizona. They're, they're, they're birds of a feather politically, um, and it's very unlikely that, they'll, that he'll have a significant challenger. Yes. Yeah. Well, John, I think I've just scratched the surface on Arizona politics, so I'm going to pass it to Catherine for some more questions, and then she'll pass it to Tim with even more. Okay, very good. Thank you, David. Hey, it's Catherine. Thank you so much for being on the show tonight. We really appreciate it. Um, I want to ask you about something that you probably think about a lot and are tired of hearing about, but what is the deal with Kristen Cinema? <laughs> What does she want, and why does she want it, and how did she get here? I, I did not realize until very recently that she used to be a Green Party in the Green Party. Seems like such an unusual transformation from the Green Party to where she is now. So, what what are your thoughts about that? Uh, it's a uh, good, uh, good evening, by the way. It's good, good to be here. Thank you for that question. <laughs> um, you know, I've, I've actually known Kirsten cinema for, uh, quite a while now. Um, you know, when, as you said, she was a member of the green party before she was elect first elected to the legislature, uh, nearly 20 years ago, uh, 15 to 12, 15, 16 years ago, something like that, when she was first elected to the leg state legislature, um, she was a was a Green Party member. Um, she switched to Democratic, uh, the Democratic Party when she uh, when she ran for the legislature. She was a, a leader in the state legislature. She rose to be a, a you know Democratic leader in the legislature. Um, she helped to defeat uh, the proposition that uh, would have made same-sex marriage illegal. We Arizona was the first and I believe only state, at least up until that point, that had actually voted down. Um, uh, a ban on same-sex marriage. This was back in 2005 or six. I don't remember the exact year. Um, so she was pretty well respected. She was uh, well liked. Um, uh, you know, when when she first ran for Congress in 2012, um, I was actually uh, I was the executive director. No, I'm sorry. In 2012, I was regional field director for Maricopa County Democratic Party at the time, and you know, a big chunk of my job that year was to help get her elected to Congress. And um, I knew I knew Kirsten Sinema at that point for a while and uh, was very happy to help get her elected to Congress. Um, it's it's been a it's been a it's been a very interesting road for those of us who have known her for quite a while um, to see her transformation to. 
at first she became more moderate and more centrist, and now she's becoming more conservative. I'm not quite sure how to even describe where she is right now. Yeah, uh, but it, it's, it's, hard. Hard. it's hard to understand. <laughs> yeah, it, you're not the only one. Believe me, those of us uh, living here uh, within the party uh, have, who have been active for years, who have helped her to get to the place where she is now, um, are a bit taken aback by her her stance on a lot of things currently, I will tell you. Um, I, to be honest, I don't know what her current motivation is. Um, I, I, I really don't. I, I, I wish I did. Um, it, it doesn't seem, you know, she's always been uh, pragmatic. She's always been um, willing to uh, work with people from the other side of the aisle. And there's nothing wrong with that, certainly, um, to get things done. You know, she, she likes to say she, she gets stuff done. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But it seems certainly lately, especially this year, that uh, um, she's taken a step beyond that. And I'm not quite sure any of us know why she's doing that. <laughs> Well, it's it's a, it's kind of an interesting transformation, and it it's 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 really frustrating. Like I, not knowing her, it's just kind of mysterious to watch her and try to figure out what what's her what's on her mind. So, and how do how do what are her? I haven't looked at her approval ratings or her like how are how are Arizonians feeling about her? Um, well, I think that that depends on, and this is probably part of the triangulation that she's making, right? Um, uh, she's definitely tacked far to the right of where she previously was. Um, you know, among Democratic activists, she's she's lost a lot of support. Um, among average Democratic voters who don't pay that much attention to party party politics and pay more attention to, you know, the, every every two years or every four years or every six years, they wake up and say, oh, this is the person I should vote for. I'm not sure what the average voter thinks on the Democratic side. I would say probably among uh, average independent and Republican voters, they're probably okay with her. Um, And this, again, this is probably part of the triangulation she's making these days. Um, You know, the problem with that is it seems to me and to many of us who pay more attention to this stuff is that that she's tacked much further to the right than she needed to. Um, you know, she beat Martha McSally. Um, the, the, the people of Arizona had a clear choice when it came to voting for her or Martha McSally, um, and they chose her. Um, and then uh, and then two years later, when Martha McSally ran again, um, you know, they had a clear choice between Mark Kelly and Martha McSally. And again, they chose Martha McSally, I mean, they chose uh, Mark Kelly over Martha McSally. So the people of Arizona have rejected uh, McSally twice. Um, and so I don't quite understand why Kirsten Cinema thinks she actually has to run to the right of Martha McSally. I mean, that just seems absurd to me. Um, but the reality is, you know, she's not up for re-election this year. She's, she's uh, in 2024. So, or next year, I should say, she's in 2024. So I'm not quite sure what her I'm not quite sure what her game is at the moment, but it does seem to most of us who pay who are paying attention um, that she's running considerably further to the right than she needs to electorally, 
And um, and that may bring us to uh, the rest of the U.S. Senate race, Mark Kelly's race, which is this coming year. Um, again, you know, Mark Kelly uh, beat Martha McSally. Um, that brand, the Republican brand at the U.S. Senate was, was actually beaten twice. And again, I, I don't understand why Ms. Cinema um, thinks she has to run in that particular yeah, lane. It's mysterious. <laughs> okay, I'm going to pass it to Tim because I think he's going to ask you about Mark Kelly. Okay, thank you. Tim? Tim? Tim, you still with us? Okay, Tim is showing up on the board right now, so I'm not sure what's going on. But I do, Catherine's right, Tim did want to ask about Mark Kelly's race. Um, okay, here I am. Oh, here he is. Having, oh, sorry, guys, I was having a little trouble with my cell phone. Um, good evening, John. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, I was going to ask you about Senator Kelly. Uh, obviously, he's been targeted um, heavily by national Republicans as either the number one or number two target among sitting Democratic senators. So what do his prospects look like in Arizona next year? Oh, good evening, Tim. Thank you for that question. Um I think I think Mark Kelly is actually in a pretty good uh, pretty good spot. Um, you know he uh, he beat again he beat Martha McSally uh, fairly handily in the special election in 2020, um, and I think he's he's in a pretty good spot. He doesn't have you know he doesn't have any primary challengers on the Democratic side. Um, he doesn't have any. Uh, unlike Senator Cinema, he doesn't have any um, sort of anger within the Democratic Party against him. He's he's quite popular, um, and at the same time, um, I don't think he's done anything to anger Republicans in Arizona. Um, so I think I think uh, Senator Kelly is actually in a really good position uh, right now going into the 2022 election. Uh, could the antics of Senator Cinema affect his race in any way, or do the voters out there look at those two totally differently, even though they're in the same party? Um, I think I think the voters look at them as completely separate people. Um, you know, Ms. Cinema has a very uh, very unique personality, and and uh, and she's been around for a long time. You know, Senator, uh, Senator Kelly, likewise, has a very uh, a very strong personality persona. He has a good he has a good uh, reputation within the state. Um, I think most people uh, would expect would say that he's represented the state well. If anything, I think um, uh, Kirsten Sinema's antics might actually help him with Republicans because uh, they would be able to look at. Uh, Mark Kelly and say, well, our, our neither one of our Democratic senators are really that bad. They're not, you know, the, you're not those bleeding heart liberals kind of thing. So I think I think Senator Kelly is actually uh, 
probably not harmed at all by by cinema's action, um, and may actually be somewhat helped uh, by her actions with the Republican electorate. Mm. Okay, now the next thing I want to talk about, I, w- I want to kind of dive into the weeds a little bit here and, and talk some real inside politics stuff. Um, there was a report in Rolling Stone in, in, in a story that Andy Biggs over in the 5th District there may have been involved in some of the January 6th shenanigans up there in uh, in in Washington in the insurrection does that story have any legs i know he is vehemently denied but does that story have any legs uh, probably not i mean uh you know he um yeah i've i've heard that not just from rolling stone but that certainly has gotten some play here uh, that, mm-hmm. he has, that he has uh, needed to distance himself from the January 6th events. Um, he, he's he's certainly doing his best, I think, to distance himself from those events. Um, I don't think it hurts him in his district. Um, his mm-hmm. district, if, if he chooses to run for re-election uh, in his district, which it looks like he will, um, even – with the change of lines, uh, his district is, is solidly Republican. Um, and so mm-hmm. it, it shouldn't, shouldn't harm him any. Um, he has expressed some interest in running p- potentially for the U S Senate, uh, primary. Um, mm-hmm. at least he's been, you know, he's been, he has expressed, he has expressed public interest in, in kicking those tires at least. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think, probably would be well served to stay in his district at, in Congress, actually. But uh, that's his decision, mm-hmm. not mine. But I don't, I don't uh, think January 6th will harm him unless unless the House uh, investigation uh, actually uncovers more than what we know at the moment. Okay. Now, now you, you've uh, brought up a couple of times redistricting and, and uh, some different lines. Um, what does redistricting look like out there right now? Uh, well, we've seen uh, right now the we we have an independent redistricting commission which uh, mm-hmm. has taken it's taken the drawing of lines out of the hands of the state legislature and uh, and has put it within an independent redistricting commission, uh, which consists mm-hmm. of two Republicans, two Democrats, and an independent who's the chair, um, and. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, as you know, probably the last time around, affirmed that uh, that was a, a legal way of, of achieving uh, redistricting because uh, Republicans mm-hmm. said uh, taking it away from the legislature was illegal, but the U.S. Supreme Court disagreed. Um, so the, the interim lines that we've seen, they've, they've actually adopted, uh, they've adopted a draft set of lines um, mm-hmm. that look fairly interesting. Um, they're, uh, they're pretty balanced. Uh, right now those, those draft lines are, um, uh, the commission is going around the state and they will, uh, get, getting, uh, getting feedback from population around the state for the next 30 days or so. Um, and hope to, they hope to, uh, adopt, uh, 
uh, permanent lines after any tweaks need to be made uh, by the end of the year, by the end of December. Uh, mm. But if, if, the, if the lines stay more or less the way they are drawn in the draft uh, situation for both the congressional districts and the legislative districts, they're pretty interesting and they're um, pretty balanced. Um, I believe that the, uh, right, right now Arizona's House delegation uh, to, to D.C. is 5-4 is Democratic, 5 Democrats, 4 Republicans. Mm -hmm. uh, and it looks to be, with the new lines as currently drawn, if they stay basically the same, uh, it would look to be roughly the same balance of five Democratic districts and four Republican districts. Oh, interesting. So the, they, they are drawing districts for a truly purple state, then. Um, it, it would seem, uh, you know, they... They actually, the criteria that they have, which is spelled out in the, in the state constitution, um, does not allow them to uh, draw for incumbency. So they can't, they can't draw lines with um, uh, protecting incumbents in, in mind. Um, they can't draw lines with protecting uh, one party over the other in mind. Um, they're supposed to draw them on a, a set of criteria, including uh, contiguous populations or contiguous geography uh, so as to avoid odd-looking gerrymanders. Um, they're supposed to adhere to the Voting Rights Act. Um, so the, line, the, the boundaries in the districts for this current round actually look pretty interesting, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm generally pleased with the outcome. Um, mm -hmm. It does look like some incumbents will actually be running against each other, uh, uh -huh. depending on where where they choose to run. Uh, but again, the the numbers look like, uh, at least on paper, that it, it, if all goes if all goes well from my perspective or from the Democratic perspective, we would end up with five Democrats and four Republicans going to D.C. again after the 2022 election. Okay, and one final question about this process. Um, I, I assume that you mentioned the courts um, intervening. I assume that the courts would protect this commission from anything that the legislature might try to do to seize the process back from the commission. Is that correct? Uh, yes, I believe that is correct. After the after the last go around in twenty. 12, you know, 10 years ago, uh, the mm -hmm. Republicans did launch a number of, uh, did launch a number of uh, uh, complaints, charges against the commission, um, and at least one of those, I, I forget exactly how many, but at least one of them made it all the way to the Supreme Court, because the question, U.S. Supreme Court, because the question was, uh, do independent redistricting commissions like Arizona's and like California's have the legal ability to draw congressional districts when the uh, when the U.S. Constitution says that's a legislative prerogative, um, and the the court uh, the court agreed that the commissions do have that uh, authority because ultimately the legislative authority exists with the people, um, and it was the people through their uh, through the referendum process that created the commission. So. Um, oh. 
Well, yeah, the, court, okay, well. the, court, the courts have upheld uh, the independence of the redistricting commission here and its ability to draw lines in a way that conform to uh, the Arizona law and the Arizona state constitution. Oh, well, thank you for all of that, John. We appreciate that info, and I'm going to send it back to David. David? Yes, John, we thank you so much for coming on the Kudzu Vine tonight. Um, if our listeners have heard of you and they want to hear uh, or see more about your uh, writings and thoughts on Arizona politics, where can they follow you on social media, read anything, connect with you in any way? Uh, yes, yeah, so um, – uh, you can you can see more about me on Resolve to Win. That's Resolve to Win dot org. Um, I'm available at uh, for email at J Ryder J R Y D E R uh, at Resolve to Win dot org. Um, so I'd be be happy to speak with anybody else about Arizona elections. Excellent. Well, thanks again for all the information, and I'm sure we'll call on you before the 2022 midterms to give us an update on how things are progressing. Well, well, thank you all for having me on this evening, and uh, you have you all have a good Thanksgiving now. You too. Thank, thank you, you very sir. Much. Good night. Good night. Good night. Yes. Um, well, that was John Rodder of Arizona. So much, you know, uh, two statewide elections at the top level, if you will, governor and uh, lieutenant governor, new maps like everyone else, and and some characters, to say the least, um, in Arizona politics to discuss as well. Um, well, let's go ahead. We've got just a few more minutes, and um, for the past, it's really been going on a while. People being subpoenaed or, or called to testify to Congress and just ignoring it. And um, in recent weeks, Steve Bannon and Mark Meadows were, um, you know, called to testify. They both ignored uh, those requests and did not, uh, you know, testify on the actions that took place on January 6th of this year. Well, um, uh, late on Friday, some action was taken on Steve Bannon, and my understanding is some action is going to be taken on uh, Mark Meadows next. Uh, Tim, tell us more about what's going on there. Well, I'd like to start by saying Bannon should be used to what's happening since it's his second time to to be indicted. Uh, you you know they 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 had to do this, and I am so thankful that we've got a justice department that would do it. You know, we we were scratching our heads, all of us guys, when, when in recent weeks when we've been talking on the show about this like what's happening with Steve Bannon. Why is nothing being done about Steve Bannon? He has thumbed his nose at the Congress. He has ignored a congressional subpoena, and that is uh, a violation of the law, and nothing seemed to be happening. What we didn't know was that the Justice Department had convened a grand jury. Basically, they went through the process and built a case as would happen with a grand jury in a local trial in, you know, my county, your counties, or, or, or any other place. And they came back with uh, an indictment on two counts of, you know. And here's what I think. 
Bannon sees himself as a martyr. Um, and the right-wing media is going to portray him as that. And here we will go with the competing storylines again. Bannon loves this stuff. It makes him relevant, and in his mind, it makes him important. Um, and what I'm hoping hoping here, guys, is because he's got these two counts of contempt of Congress against him, which is what he's been charged with, each one could carry up to a year in jail. He's going to have to turn himself in tomorrow, you know, and be booked and be in court on Tuesday, by the way. And maybe some others like Mark Meadows, who you mentioned, David, will uh, will take note of this. Uh, either that or congressional committees like this are just going to have to go out of business. If, if people can just thumb their noses at, you know, subpoenas and, you know, what – and, and nobody does anything about it. Uh, boy, I'm glad something was done about it. That's that's what I have to say there. So that's that's where we stand. Steve Bannon is indicted on two counts, and he will be uh, at least in the jail to be booked tomorrow. Yes, and to me, it's not about you know oh lock him up in in these media narratives. There is a rule of law, and there's a procedure and process that we need right. to follow, no matter if we're on That's the left right. side or the right side of the aisle. And if you rip That's up the correct. rule book, you begin to underpin democracy, and it's kind of like the you know guest we had on you know some time ago, Stephen Levitsky in his book, How Democracies Die. When you can't call mm-hmm. people in to you know simply ask them questions and find out uh, more information. Your democracy is weakened. Uh, Catherine, your take on this. I'm all in with Tim, what Tim said. You know, it's about time they did something, and I'm so, so relieved that that the Department of Justice, you know, and the commission went, went forward and did something. And uh, so it's good news for democracy, I think. Yeah, they kind of had to. I mean, if you're not going to make people follow the rules, then you're going to have the rules just be meaningless, and people can ignore things left and right. And when do people start uh, just ignoring subpoenas from courts at that point? Although here's the thing, and I think it's such irony with Steve Bannon because he likes to, you know, talk about the elites, and you know, he's one of the have-nots, and he's just one of the little people. Well, <laughs> while he could have ignored this subpoena, and then if the Justice Department wasn't taking this move, made this move, he may could have gotten away with it. The average person gets a subpoena to appear in court, and they try to follow Steve Bannon's move. They're going to go be arrested, and so the little person would have to follow the rules, showing that Steve Bannon's not one of the little people, one of the regular people. Um, I don't know where he gets this fantasy from. It, it seems so strange and weird that he um, – it was the campaign manager to a presidential campaign, and he's somehow um, part of the totalitarian. Um, it, it's just, you know, baffling to me. Um, but he'll now have to go in, and hopefully now he can testify like he's supposed to in the first place, 
Meadows. I wonder if Meadows now has time to to show up on the Capitol door at nine o'clock on Monday morning, bang into uh, on the door to see if he can get behind the table and answer questions, or if he can uh, to escape his um, um, judicial action, if you will. I, I don't do you know, Tim, if there's a a way he can make amends before he gets <laughs> the next action taken. Actually, I think I think that ship has already sailed on him. Uh, it's going to be interesting to to know if we if we hear anything from him, or or if the, or if Congress, that committee, hears anything from him or his attorney. Uh, I, I heard he had uh, secured himself a pretty high priced attorney, by the way, for this stuff. Uh, that's interesting for a person who was planning on doing nothing. Uh, who was planning on ignoring the process that he retained an attorney, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I don't think that the sandwich shops. Wasn't he, wasn't he the sandwich shop guy uh, in North Carolina before he went to Congress? Um, yeah, seems yeah. like it. Yeah, it seems like the money um, would be, uh, you know, something you wouldn't want to lose if you could have just shown up and and talked about what went on, although they don't want to talk about what went on. Um, and that's why right. they should have never taken those actions and upheld democracy for the little people that um, Steve Bannon professes to love so much, because democracy is where all the people can have an equal say, um, you, know, you know, within numbers. Well, uh, great show. Uh, thanks again to John Ryder for coming on talking to us about Arizona. Next week, we have Charles Whelan, Dr. Charles Whelan of Dartmouth University, but he's going to be talking about um, his new book, We Came, We Saw, We Left, about taking a global vacation that lasted about nine months. He's going to be talking to us about that book next week, and um, Catherine, you won't be on with us, will you? I will not be on. So we'll miss you in that. Of course, Send us any questions, and we'll be glad to pass them on to Dr. Whelan for you. Um, okay. But until then, been the cousin, Yvonne. Good night, guys. Good night, y'all. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America.